Genesis 48. Three chapters left in this mind-blowing study. I don't know about you, but I have been so incredibly blessed moving through this book. Um, just absolutely amazing, the, uh, the intricacy of God's Word and how He ties things together and how things make sense to me that never did before. And how simple it is that just by listening to, studying, reading, and heeding His Word, how He changes us and grows us and, and moves in us. So we're going to start right out tonight, jumping right into the first verse, Genesis 48, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Now at this time, Israel's eyes, Jacob's eyes are dim. His health is failing. He's 147 years of age. He is on his deathbed. This is it for Israel. But when Jacob hears his son Joseph is coming, the Bible tells us that Israel collected his strength. Notice that contrast there. Jacob is sick in bed. Jacob is dying. But when he hears that Joseph is coming, now Israel sits up and collects his strength. And as we've seen back and forth in Jacob's name, whether it's Israel or Jacob, there's always some meaning. There's always some purpose for the writer writing it that way. And this, I believe, is a powerful reminder. It, it really spoke to me this week that our strength is not found in Jacob. That is in our schemes and in our plans and in our work and in the things that we have laid out. That is not where we find our strength. Our strength is always found in Israel that is governed by God. And the place where we're governed by God, where we're handing it to the Lord, that's where our strength comes from. But if we try to work by our own plans, try and figure things out on our own, that's when, like Jacob, we tend to be on our deathbed. We tend to be like Jacob back in Genesis 42, 36, that famous phrase, All these things are against me, he said. And how many times have we said that over and over, and it's amazing. I can, I can preach a message. I can get up here on a Sunday morning and talk about Jacob and Israel and being governed by God. And yes, we need to be governed by God. And that night, in my home, just be saying, all these things are against me. So I need the reminder, the constant reminder, maybe you do too, that we, like Israel, are people who are governed by God. That that's where the strength comes from. Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through Christ who strengthens me, not through my plans or my schemes. And yet, when our eyes are dim and our hearts fail, and we find ourselves sick of the world with 147 reasons to give up, it's in those moments God taps us on the shoulder and reminds us who the governor is. That we are governed by God. Now, tonight I want to encourage you, <clears throat> excuse me, as we begin, to collect your strength. Because we are going to start into the, the last of Genesis, some of the most powerful passages here in the entire Bible. We're going to cover some things tonight that are just mind-boggling. Next week, we're going to cover even more. And it's just absolutely amazing. I'll give you a little heads up. No, I won't. I'll save that for later. <laughs> I just get excited. I want you to know, but I can't tell you yet. Let's pray for a second longer. I want to make sure that God is, is blessing our time and that His Spirit is teaching us tonight. So let's go to the Father. Lord, as we go beyond these first two verses and begin to delve into the end of Genesis, the end of the beginning, bless this study, Father. 
Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds. And Father, I pray tonight because we're going to cover some tenuous ground. Talk about some things that there's a fine line and I know what it is. Everybody will understand when we get there. But Lord, I pray that you will give us soundness in our understanding. And clarity in the doctrine that we are gaining from Genesis. God, there's a lot of faulty doctrine out there. There's a lot of false teaching in the world and even in, unfortunately, the church. And I pray, Lord, that you will bind us to your words tonight. Hold us close to your heart. And may we understand these things in the context in which you want them to be understood. And God, if for any reason I begin to go out on a limb, would you just pull me back closer to you? And teach us tonight, Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis chapter 49 is best known as the chapter of blessing. But I discovered in studying through Genesis 48 that there are several blessings hidden within this passage. And I want to give you eight or nine of them tonight. And the first one, if you want to jot these down, the first is a divine intervention. The first blessing we see, a divine intervention. For now, Jacob is there, Israel. He's lying in bed. Actually, now he's sitting up. He has his strength. And Joseph is coming in with Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons. And Jacob, Israel, is going to begin to bless them. And in these blessings, he's going to begin to prophesy as well. But here's how he begins. Verse 3. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. In the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give you this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Jacob starts by going back to his conversion at Luz. Remember what Luz means? It means separation. A place of separation. And Jacob was certainly separated from God at that point in his life. Running from his, from his brother Esau, running for his life, having pulled off this massive deception, getting the birthright, getting the blessing. And now as he runs off, he ends up in Luz, the place of separation. But it's there that God chases him down, tracks him down, and saves him. And so Jacob renames that place Bethel, the house of God. We talked about before how awesome it is that God takes us from that place of separation, of being distant from Him, and pulls us into His house, brings us in as His children. We'll see more of this in just a moment. But Jacob starts off the blessing talking about his own blessing, this divine intervention, and Jacob needed an intervention, if anybody did. And so God comes to him, and he is changed, he is touched, and though his life is certainly not perfect after that, we know that, Watch his life. Man, he's saved, but is he perfect? Absolutely not. He is a sinner through and through. He's got the covering of God, but man, he's messing up for years and years and years. It's not really until this last section of his life, when he's living near Joseph among, among his children, that Jacob starts to live as a true man of faith. But this divine intervention yields the second blessing, which is a surprising adoption. A surprising adoption. Verse 5. Jacob is now speaking to Joseph and does something I don't think Joseph was ready for or expected. He says, Now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Verse 6, But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. 
Israel does something amazing here on his deathbed. He adopts the first two sons of Joseph. They, these are now my boys. He, he, it's unbelievable. He takes Ephraim and Manasseh and not only adopts them, but he elevates them to the same status as his other twelve sons. The twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve sons of Israel, now we have fourteen sons of Israel. He elevates them to this amazing patriarchal status. And then he goes further than that. Not only does he elevate them, but he replaces Reuben the firstborn and Simeon the secondborn with Ephraim and Manasseh. He elevates them to a place of brotherhood with their uncles and then gives them the highest place in the family. It's been said that a child... That the child who can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they were chosen and wanted and desired by their parents is the adopted child. Now many of you know the D'Angelos and you've seen little Leticia from Bolivia running all around here. And she has adopted America very well. She's, she's an American kid through and through. But this Sunday is kind of a cool day in the life of the D'Angelos. They're not here so we'll spend a moment and just talk about them behind their backs. This Sunday is Gotcha Day. It's a day that they celebrate, like Leticia's birthday, though it's not her birthday. Gotcha Day is the day that they got her when they went down to Bolivia. And every year at this time on this same day, they celebrate Gotcha Day. They go out to lunch, they have a little party, they do some fun stuff. Then they take Leticia home, sit down, and they watch the video of when they went and got her. It's a great day. And... It shows and it reminds and it will remind Leticia all of her life that she was handpicked, that she was chosen, that Jeff and Penelope at any cost, and truly there was cost, desired her, wanted her, adopted her, she was worth it, and my friends, so are you. So are you. You have been adopted as children of the Father. And when you walk in Christ, every day is gotcha day. Every moment we turn around, we start to stray from the Father, and we turn back, and He goes, Gotcha. I've never let you go. You still belong to me. John chapter 1, verse 12. John says, As many who received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of a man, but of God. And Paul says in Romans 8, 15, You have received the spirit of adoption. You're an adopted child. I used to read that and look at that and think, well, adoption's nice, but I'd rather just be like genetically bound. I want to be, you know, born into the family. And I'm reminded now that adoption means God chose me at the highest cost, picked me out, said, you were lost, but now you're found. Now you are my child. And Jacob does this, this awesome thing, adopting, elevating Ephraim and Manasseh, receiving them as his own sons, and in the same way, when I receive Christ as my Savior, I am adopted into the household of God, which is why I call Him Father. It's why I'm able, Paul says also in Romans 8, to cry out to Him, Abba, Father. Because now I have a spirit of sonship, a spirit of adoption. Now again, there are 14 tribes in Israel, not 12. You always hear about the 12 tribes of Israel. There are actually 14. They're the original 12 from Reuben through Benjamin, including Joseph. And now we add Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, but Ephraim and Manasseh, they tend to replace two other tribes. So you get back down to 12. Here's how that works. They replace Joseph. Joseph's slot is now taken by his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Although, interestingly, in the last days, 
The Bible tells us that Joseph will emerge again as a tribe. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 7 verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now some cult groups will claim that's them. Jehovah's Witness will say, we're the 144,000. Which would concern me if I was Jehovah's Witness. Because they're already full. 144,000 have already been filled up. So where do I go? But the 144,000, John is very clear, very clear exactly who they are. He says, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he goes out and explains, describes, talks about each of them. From the tribe of Judah, where Jesus comes from, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, there's Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. And from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So we have in this end time scenario, this original 12 plus Manasseh, but there are two missing. Ephraim's not here. And Dan is not here. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> the tribe of Dan is missing. Why is the tribe of Dan missing? Well, I'm just going to throw this out as a tidbit just to freak you out. But there is some biblical possibility that Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. And that that's why Dan doesn't have their portion. I will tell you at least this much. Dan, of all the tribes of Israel, was the most idolatrous, was the furthest out, living on the cusp, even when they first settled in the land, living right near the foreigners, as far out from the center of Israel as you could be. And they were the first of the, of the tribe to really fall. But this whole thing about Antichrist, it's, it's a fascinating connection, and that's all I'm going to tell you about it. But if you want to talk about that or find out more, I can point you in some directions in the Bible. But if you have the original twive, 12, sorry, the original 12 tribes, twives, the twives, if you have the original 12 tribes, and you add Ephraim and Manasseh, and you remove Joseph, it still leaves us with 13 tribes. 13. But there's another tribe that's taken out of the equation, and that's Levi. Because Levi is a tribe of priests, and they were never allotted a piece of land. They lived out in and among all of the other tribes. And it reminds me that these priests who had no territory of their own are kind of a picture of the church. For you see, as priests, a royal priesthood ourselves, Peter says, it's our job to be sprinkled out in among the tribes, throughout the nations. To be a people who are not holding up in one little spot, but spreading out. Can I just throw this out to you? Would you begin praying right now that the bridge plants another church? I realize we're not even a year old. Coming up close. I want this church to plant churches. I would like to see us sending people out. There are some of you who I'd like to send out right now. No, I'm kidding. I want us to be a sending church. To, to see other churches planted. And it's not too early to begin praying that the Lord will raise up from among us people to do that so that we can spread out like the priests, like Levi, spread out among all the people. You are a holy priesthood. So spread out. Well, verse 7, back to chapter 48. Now as for me, he's going on now in the blessing. He says, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow. 147 years old and he still feels the pain of losing his wife, Rachel. 
in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephraim. And I buried her there on the way to Ephraim, that is, Bethlehem. And Rachel's tomb can still be seen there today. If you visit the Promised Land, which I'm hoping to very soon, you can still visit her tomb in Bethlehem. Now, notice this. Jacob, in the middle of this blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh, blesses, or Jacob blesses Joseph's sons and talks about his wife, Rachel. Why? Because Rachel is Joseph's mom. And I think that all along, Jacob, when he considered his sons, probably always thought of Joseph as the true firstborn. He wasn't. He came down the line quite a ways. But Rachel was the love. Rachel, had he not been deceived by Laban and stuck with Rachel's sister Leah, and then gotten Bilhah and Zilpah and all the mess going on there, he chose Rachel. Rachel bore him Joseph. Joseph was his favorite. His second favorite son was Benjamin, who was also born by Rachel, and she died giving birth to Benjamin. But these two sons are the two sons that I think Jacob always thought of as his most precious and Joseph as his firstborn. And so now he does this wild thing. He grabs Joseph's sons and he says, These boys, they're mine. They're mine. And he talks about Rachel with this love, with this affection that I think is so precious. It reminds me of my grandma Crawford. When I was in high school, I was over at her house. She passed away a few years ago now. But I was at her house and we were sitting there playing cards one night and just talking. And we began talking about my grandpa, Grandpa Crawford, who I didn't know very well. In fact, I was about three years old when he died. So I never really got to know him. So I'm asking questions and trying to find out more about him. And then, out of the blue, I just said, Grandma, do you miss Grandpa sometimes? And her eyes filled up. And she began to cry, right? I'd never seen my grandma cry before. And I recognized in that moment that the intense love that she still had. He died in 19... 67. She lived the last 30 years of her life without him and never took off her wedding ring. She loved him so much. And in this and in Joseph and Jacob we see something of a lifelong love. And I think we've missed it somewhere in our culture, this marriage hopping culture that we have. We have missed the beauty, the wonder of a lifelong love. And so let me encourage those of you who are married no matter how rough it may get from time to time, if it does, to stick together. Because you will reach something more beautiful than you can imagine. And those who have been married a long time know what I'm talking about. Well, verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They're my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, so that I may bless them. Now he's already said they're mine. He's adopted them. Now he wants to bless them. Where are we? What verse is that? Okay, verse 10. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. And then Joseph brought them close to him, so he kissed them and embraced them. And they're going, Grandpa. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. The third blessing we see in this passage is an intimate affiliation. That Jacob, he's still the one getting blessed here. This intimate affiliation, he never thought he'd see Joseph, much less see his grandsons, but now he's had 17 years with both, and I imagine these lads were a joy to him. He must have just loved them. He wanted them as his own. He adopted them as his own. And you know, it's easy to underestimate our families, or at least to take for granted the value of our family relations. I'd encourage you every now and then just to stop and thank God. 
for those strange, bizarre, off-the-wall, funky people who live with you, your family, because they are a blessing. And though Israel is giving the blessings here, he is clearly blessed by his family. Verse 12, Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Now, I'll just throw this out. Interesting. Some have said, or believe, that Ephraim and Manasseh are probably 20, 25, somewhere in there. At least 17 to 18 years old. And I'm thinking this verse may twist that around a bit because you're not going to see a 25-year-old sitting on his father's knees. And I went back and double-checked, and yes, they are on his knees, and he pushes them off his knees toward their grandpa. If they were 25 years old and sitting on his knees, we got a different problem. A couple of daddy's boys here. Verse 13, Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand. Now, look at what he's doing. He takes Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and he brought them close to him. Why? Because Manasseh was his firstborn. Put the firstborn by the right hand, put the secondborn by the left hand, because the right hand of blessing is for the firstborn child. Joseph is positioning his kids for the blessings that he wants them to receive. But Jacob still has a few tricks up his sleeve yet. Verse 15. It tells us, oh sorry, where are we? I jumped in there. 14. Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was firstborn. Verse 15. He blessed Joseph and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, before I talk about these crossed hands and what's going on there, there's another blessing, a historical and historical recognition. Again, as he's blessing these two young men, these two boys, Jacob, Israel, draws back and recognizes something historically. And there are two first mentions here in this part of the blessing that we need to look at. They're worth recognizing. The first one is in verse 15. In verse 15, it tells us, The God who has been my shepherd. Now, this is not the first time we've seen the word shepherd, ra'ah, in the Hebrew. But it's the first time we've seen shepherd connected with God. It's the first time that God in the Bible is called a shepherd, and I think it's incredibly significant. Psalm 80, verse 1, tells us, Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come and save us. Oh God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. But notice the difference here in what Jacob is saying. First he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. And then he says, the God who has been my shepherd. Think about the positional difference here. Abraham and Isaac walked before God. Jacob walked after God. Abraham and Isaac didn't follow a a shepherd. They were driven forward. The shepherd was behind them. God was behind them. God was calling Abraham and saying, I need you to get out of Haran and go into the promised land. So God drives them there. And then when Abraham wanders down to Egypt, God says, no, I need you out of Egypt and drives them back up to the promised land. Isaac, driven by God. But with Jacob, the position changes and now God is in front. Now God is the shepherd. God is the one who is leading him forward. 
There's an old um, story told in the Middle East about shepherds and how they function. And a tour guide in the Middle East was walking through and showing the, the sheep and the shepherds to the people. And he was talking about how the shepherd always leads, how the shepherd goes first. The shepherd calls out the sheep's name and they all just follow after him. And just as he was talking about this, here comes a whole bunch of sheep, a flock, and they are crossing the road, but the guy's behind them, and he's got a stick, and he's driving them and calling out after them and pushing them on. As the tour guide was real confused about this whole thing. He just blew his whole entire example, and he went up and he talked to the man. He said, I just was telling these people that, you know, the shepherd goes first, and here you are behind him. And he goes, well, I'm not the shepherd, I'm the butcher. <laughs> driving the flock, but the shepherd leads the flock. Jesus said in John 10, verse 2, He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And to him, speaking of himself, Jesus says, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Can I just mention for you, for a second, there are those who believe that people are just sheep. I actually heard that recently. People are just sheep. They're going to follow wherever you go. They're going to do whatever you say. When Jesus talked about the sheep here, I don't think he had that dim a view of people. He's talking about the love relationship, don't, don't get weird on me here, but between the shepherd and his sheep, that he cared for his flock and his flock knew him. And he called them by name. And when he called their name, they recognized and they followed the shepherd. They connected with the shepherd. They went after the shepherd. And that's what Christianity truly is. It's following the shepherd. It's learning to listen to his voice. It's being in prayer and then being silent. It's keeping your eyes open to the leading of the Lord. Which is not an easy thing to do. I was telling Mike and Andrew this morning at, at breakfast. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. Here I am, senior pastor of the bridge. And i got to tell you guys. I love teaching the word. I love what we're doing. I love the worship, everything else. But beyond that, I get scared. I really do. I'm surrounded by guys older than me, elders, all older except one. And the reason is because I need that support, that encouragement. I don't know any more than you what God wants for the bridge. And in saying that, I also recognize it's a risky thing to say because I know if President George Bush got up and said, well, we're not really sure where we're going the next four years. I hope you vote for me. <laughs> we don't go, you're out. But I don't know exactly the direction God has for the bridge. What I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt is he knows. And we've got to listen. We've got to listen to the shepherd. He is truly the pastor. He's the shepherd. And he's the one we're listening to. And as long as, by the way, the leaders of this church are listening, and it's apparent to you all that we are listening, we're in good shape. But if it becomes apparent that we're jumping off the cliff, that we're heading off in all sorts of directions, that we're doing what man needs to do, that we're being Jacob, and we're pulling out all our schemes, and we're no longer Israel governed by God, then as a family, as a flock of sheep, you need to start going, bad move. Okay? God was behind Abraham, driving him. God was behind Isaac, holding him back. But God led Jacob. He's the shepherd of Israel. Leading him on to faith. Now, the other interesting first mention is, as Israel is again thinking back, is verse 16, he says, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. This is the first time the word redeemed is used. First time redeemed is in the scripture at all. It's ga'al, and it has to do with the buying back 
the next of kin. It's the kinsman-redeemer type thing. You can read and study about the kinsman-redeemer relationship in the book of Ruth. It's portrayed beautifully there. But notice here who Israel credits with his redemption. The angel. The angel. The messenger sent of God. When did he have this contact with this angel, this man, this messenger of God? It was when he struggled and wrestled all night long at that place that he named Peniel. Genesis 32 verse 30 tells us he named the place Peniel for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. The angel who redeemed me. Who is that angel? It's none other than Jesus. Who redeemed him, bought him, and even back here, wedged into the Old Testament, old Israel knows his Redeemer is named Jesus, Son of God. It's through Jesus we have our redemption. Now, for all of the wonderful uh, history that he's pouring out and sharing and thinking about, man, he's reminiscing and he's looking back at what God has done, Joseph is not paying attention. Joseph has another concern. He, he's not listening. Verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, not so my father, uh, this one's the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. He must have thinking dad's eyes are dim, senility creeping in. He's obviously got the wrong kid. Let me fix this problem. And he doesn't yet realize that Jacob is pulling the old switcheroo on purpose. Jacob, this man of faith, this man of God, this prophet in this moment knows exactly what he's doing. Look at verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know my son, I know. He also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And here's the fifth blessing, an underdog consecration. The underdog is consecrated. The underdog is dedicated. The underdog is, is now made first place. And this is not unusual with God in Scripture. In fact, we see it over and over. The, young, the underdog is blessed. The younger is greater than the older. Abel was the younger brother whose gift was received. He was blessed, not Cain. Isaac, the younger, was blessed, not Ishmael, who was legitimately in the culture the firstborn. Jacob was blessed, the younger, not Esau. Joseph was blessed, not Reuben. Moses was blessed. He was the younger, not Aaron. David... Well, David was blessed as the youngest of all of his brothers, placed in first place by the Lord. Why is this? Is it just that God is a pushover for the underdog? If so, the bridge is in great shape. We are the underdog. Check our noses. They're cold. Maybe it's not so much a preference as it is a promise. Now, I don't know. This, this is one of those things that I, I felt like God was just tapping me on the shoulder with this one this week. Maybe the Father is sending us a message through this younger being placed in first place, the second born coming in and being elevated. And maybe that message is that the best is always yet to come with the Father. That the first aren't always the best. That yes indeed, as Jesus said, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. Gang, when you came into Christ, when you were saved and redeemed and brought close to the Father, you were glorified in a sense. Now we don't really see it as much today. We experience it from time to time. Especially in moments of worship, we can actually sense or experience that glory that God has given us. But the Bible tells us, Paul says, we're moving from glory to glory. In ever-increasing amount, we are stepping up in our growth. We are getting closer to God. We are better than we were, not by our effort, but by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the message here, I believe, is one of amazing hope, of transformation, of the Lord saying, it just gets better from here. You had a firstborn son, Isaac. His name was Esau, and he was a hunter. And you, man, you were proud of him. But I got something better coming along. We're going to go with the younger son. Ephraim, Manasseh. Man, Manasseh is Joseph's firstborn, but Jacob recognizes the whole thing. And says, yeah, but Ephraim. Ephraim has an incredibly important role. The younger shall be the greater. And Ephraim did become the greater tribe by far. Historically, in fact, the ten northern tribes of Israel are called throughout the Bible Ephraim. Israel and Ephraim are used interchangeably to describe those ten northern tribes. Why? Because they were the biggest tribe. Ephraim by far was the largest tribe of all the ten northern tribes. What do you mean northern tribes? There was the northern tribe and the southern tribes in Israel when the kingdom split. And just a bit of history here, because it's important. Do you know why the kingdom split? You can read about it in 2 Kings, long about chapter 17. 2 Kings 17 tells us why God split the kingdom. I always thought that you had the, the Israelites all together, and then there was just backbiting and problems, and they didn't like each other, so the individual ultimately just split apart. The Bible tells us, no, God did it. God raised up Jeroboam to take the ten northern tribes and make a separate kingdom. Rehoboam was in the south with Judah and Benjamin. Those two tribes were left south. But the northern tribes, the northern kingdom, Israel, and then Judah down here, God split them apart. And why? Because Solomon, at the end of his life, was an adulterous man. Not just with all of his wives and concubines, but with other gods. Solomon walked away from the Lord. That's stunning. As a matter of fact, it's stunning to read the history of all the kings and see how poorly they did with the exception of David and Josiah. All of the rest were a mess. And because Solomon walked away from the father, because Solomon was an adulterous king who chased after other gods, God said, okay, Solomon, I'm not going to tear the kingdom away from you for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it from your sons. 2 Kings 17.23 I'm going to split them apart. And so you have this northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Israel was often called Ephraim because Ephraim was the dominant tribe up there. Now I tell you that, that because we've got to talk about something I think very important here tonight. And you need to understand that background. People often wonder about the lost tribes of Israel. Have you heard that phrase? The lost tribes of Israel? They talk about at the time of the Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. that when Assyria came down and, and drew out the northern kingdom, took Israel into captivity, that after that they never returned. And that's true. There never was a northern kingdom of Israel again. 
And there are those who believe well, that at that point they kind of split apart and they got kind of swallowed up into the nations. They lost their identity. They are the lost tribes of Israel. What happened to the lost tribes? What about them? Well, the name lost tribes, folks, is a misnomer. They are not truly lost. Let me explain. Some of the tribes fled to Judah, mixing in with their southern brothers while maintaining their tribal identity. Some, during the captivity, and when Assyria came upon them, came down south. How do you know? Well, Anna, the prophetess, in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, were told she was of the tribe of Asher. Now, this was in Jesus' day. This was, what, 700 and some odd years later. Now, in the time of Jesus, here is this woman, Anna, who is of the tribe of Asher, maintaining that identity of that tribe. So, at least one person of the ten northern tribes is not lost. At least one was living down in Judah, and many more were doing the same. In the New Testament, the Bible refers to Jews from Judah and Israelites, the northern tribe, refers to them interchangeably as one people. They're talked about as one and the same. Paul himself, who was a Benjaminite, refers to the Jews as Israelites. Romans 9, verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He's from Benjamin, of, of the Judahites, of the Jews, and yet he refers to all of Israel as his brothers. Now, some among these ten tribes were dispersed, were scattered among the nations of the world. And Orthodox Jews today believe that the complete return of all twelve tribes will indicate Messiah's coming. And that fascinates me. Because there are things going on in this world. Jim is... Uh, sent me a few emails back and forth talking about what's going on and the massive influx of Jews into Israel, back to Jerusalem. Listen to this. There's great interest among Jewish people today at the discovery of isolated pockets of descendants, not of Judah or Benjamin, but of the northern tribes. And in their return to Israel, there have been massive airlifts over the last 20 years getting these pockets, these small groups, from places all over the world and moving them back into Israel. There have been groups maintaining centuries-long Jewish practices in Ethiopia, in Zimbabwe, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Burma, even as far away as China and Japan, groups of Jews practicing, cut off as it were from Israel. And when Israel wasn't even a nation... Nowhere to go, but still practicing, still holding on, still of the ten northern tribes. After the fall of communism in the former southern Soviet Republic, a group called Mountain Jews were discovered. They traced their departure from Israel all the way back to the Assyrian captivity of 722 B.C. And as of today, most of this group are back in Israel. And that's significant, folks, because again... Orthodox Jews see that as a sign of the return of Messiah, who the Bible promises will regather all of the Israelites back together. I want you to flip in your Bibles quickly over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 15. Now, midway through your Bibles, it's an amazing, amazing prophecy. I'm sorry, it's Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. And turn there if you will. You need to see this with your own eyes. Because these Israelites have been in recent years returning to Israel in droves. And why are we talking about this? Because the blessing was on the head of Ephraim. On Ephraim. Think of Ephraim. Remember Ephraim. And is it possible that Ephraim is being brought back in these last days? 
that Messiah is on the verge of his coming. Look at verse 15 of Ezekiel 37. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick, and write on it for Judah and the sons of Israel his companions. And then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Got that? Take a couple of sticks, write on one Judah, write Ephraim on the other. And then God tells Ezekiel, he says in verse 17, Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. Now verse 18, When the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to him, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and I will make them one stick, and they will be in my hand. Verse 20, the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. God was really great with just practical illustrations here. And he's giving Ezekiel one for the people. And he says in verse 21, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations. You might want to highlight that or underline that. I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. And I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations, and no longer be divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Verse 23, they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. There will be a regathering, a restoration of Israel, Ephraim, and Judah. But wait, there's more. I believe this prophecy of the two sticks is not only about Jewish people. Not only for the Jews and the Israelites. And this is the sixth blessing if you're jotting these down. An interesting implication. An interesting implication. Listen again to Genesis 48 in the last part of verse 19. His younger brother shall be greater than he, Jacob says, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Jacob says, Ephraim, this is what's going to happen to Ephraim. He will become a multitude of nations. And it's a poor translation. Because that phrase, multitude of nations, is in Hebrew, melo ha goyim. Goyim, even today, as Frank tells me, is kind of a slang word, kind of a put-down that Jews will use about Gentiles. The Goyim. Why? Because Meloha Goyim literally means the fullness of the Gentiles. Now track with me on this. Ephraim, Ephraim, blessed by Jacob, right hand on his head, blessed as firstborn. Jacob says Ephraim is going to become the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles. He prophesies that Ephraim will be identified with the Gentile nations in the earth. And Hosea, chapter 7, verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations, Hosea says. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Now listen to this. Genetically speaking, Ephraim, after the Assyrian captivity... Though some returned to Judah, some did move on, some did travel west, some did spread out, 
Some did get so-called lost, not lost to the Father. He knows where every single hair of every single one of their heads is. He tracks all of his children, though we may seem lost, we may feel like we don't know where we are. He knows exactly where we are, and he knew where Ephraim was, but they were scattered, many of them among the nations, spread throughout the world's population. Genetically, it would happen very quickly. And so there may even be some of you here with Ephraim's blood running in your veins. It's possible. As a matter of fact, it's more than possible. It is likely. Jacob says, Ephraim's descendants shall become Melohagoyim, a multitude of nations. The fullness, he says, of the Gentiles. And herein lies a fantastic prophecy which I believe began to have its fulfillment 2,000 years ago with the advent of the church age. And with the times of the Gentiles. Romans chapter 9 verse 24. Paul says God has called people not, among, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, Paul says, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Adoption. I'm going to call those who are not my children, because they're not of the tribe of Israel, because they're not of Judah. Well, I'm going to adopt them. I'm going to bring them in. They are going to be my people. And in Romans 11.25, Paul quotes Jacob here. And says a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, the Melohagoyim, comes in. And Jesus refers to Gentiles, Luke 21, verse 24, and says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Until the, full, the fullness of the Gentiles. And Israel tells Joseph that Ephraim will be the fullness of the Gentiles. And gang, I think this points to an end time reconciliation that will blow our minds. A reconciliation of Gentile Christians as part of the stick of Ephraim. Drawn into Ephraim, safe like Ephraim. With the restored Jewish people, the stick of Judah. And how does this happen? Blessing number seven, it happens in a great salvation. A great salvation. If you want to flip over here real fast, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. And Paul says, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. This is in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. It's up there, isn't it? Where are we? Fourth from the bottom. Fourth from the bottom? Okay, that's pretty good. I actually have a whole lot more to tell you than just what's up there, so don't bank on that. I'm just kidding. Verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. Go to verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcised, that's the Gentiles being called that by the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember, Paul says, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise with no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who made both groups into one who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall 
By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in he in himself he might make the two into one new man, establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the what? What does it say? Through the cross. He will reconcile them into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Gang, the stick of Ephraim, who is the Melohagoim, the fullness of the Gentiles, and the stick of Judah, of the Jewish people, brought together by a third stick, the stick of the cross of Jesus Christ, that brings the two together, binds them together as one people before God. And Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth on that stick, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. All men, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, not just certain individuals, certain churches, certain denominations, certain peoples over others. I will draw all men, he says, to myself. Now listen to this. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, Joseph will be sealed during the tribulation. Ephraim is not mentioned. And that may be because they largely have become the Melohagoim, the fullness of the Gentiles. But i got to give you a warning here, and this is incredibly important, so don't miss this. And if you've been sleeping, go ahead and go back to sleep because won't, it won't matter anyway. But if you're awake, listen. You may have heard the phrase, again, the ten lost tribes of Israel. It comes from a belief known as British Israelism. British Israelism that teaches, and is alive and well today, it teaches falsely that the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh are England and America. It believes that those northern tribes that were scattered and lost and sucked up into the world and just spread out, eventually began to kind of settle west and became the Saxons, who ultimately then settled England. There's a song out, Jerusalem. You've probably heard it sung. It's a beautiful song, and it's not even about Jerusalem. It's about Great Britain. And it's about Great Britain being the new Jerusalem and the, the new Israel that replaces old Israel. And here's the danger with this view. First of all, it's replacement theology. It says God is through with the Jew, and now he is focused on the Gentile. But see, the prophecy of the two sticks, Judah and Ephraim, both brought together. Jew and Gentile, both one in Christ Jesus. It's kingdom theology that says in Great Britain, in its mandate, felt this for years, that they would replace Israel and bring in the kingdom. They would reign in the kingdom into the world by the work of man. We would prepare the world, conquer the world for Christ, and then he would come. And that is un. Biblical. Now some of you may say, well, but Jesus said that the gospel would preach the whole world and then he would come. Didn't he say that? Yes, he did. But we miss the fact that Revelation teaches very clearly that during the tribulation, God will be pulling out all the stops to save people, even at that time. Even after the church is gone. And that's a good thing to know, because for all the evangelistic campaigns of the church, you know, compared to what Revelation teaches about what will happen in that seven year period... We're not going to touch the kind of salvation, the soul harvest, that will go on at that time. This view of British Israelism also indicates salvation by genetics. And we know that salvation is truly by grace, not genetics. 
It's not by our culture. It's not by background. It's not by my family. Oh, well, my parents were Christians. Oh, well, I was raised going to this church, so that's just kind of what I believe. You know, that is the worst reason I can think of to go to church. Well, that's the way I was raised. Well, great. Maybe you were raised wrong. What if you were raised in the wrong place? Your culture, your history, your background does not save you. Genetics cannot save. And even if tonight someone is sitting here with the blood of Ephraim flowing through their veins, it's not going to make a bit of difference. What will save you and what saves all of us is faith in God's grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved by grace through faith and it's not of ourselves. Even if, again, I could prove Ephraim's blood is flowing among us tonight, it wouldn't save us. But listen to this and don't miss this. The Jewish people, Israel, are the instrument through which God brought us to faith in this great salvation. Did I give you that one, number seven, the great salvation? Okay. Romans chapter 11, verse 11, Paul said, I say then, they did not stumble, speaking of the Jews, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous We've looked at that verse before. It's wonderful. It's awesome. Paul goes on and says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unfathomable are His ways. Man, who else could have figured this out? I'm going to send my people Israel. I'm going to call them as my chosen people. And they're going to blow it. And because of that transgression, I'm going to save the Gentiles. And because I save the Gentiles, Israel's going to get jealous. And I'm going to come back and save them too. Man, the unsearchable, unfathomable mind of God. It's not either or. It's not Jews or Gentiles, Gentiles or Jews. It's both and all. And that's God's great plan. Verse 21. After putting Ephraim before Manasseh, then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die. But God, but God, we talked about this Sunday, I die, but God will be with you. I die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. We talked about this on Sunday. Let me very quickly just cover something. Blessing number eight here is a burial reservation. Jacob makes a burial reservation for Joseph. The word portion in verse 22 is literally ridge. As we said Sunday, it's a word play. It's the word Shechem. And Joseph didn't take, or Jacob didn't take Shechem with the sword and the bow, but he did buy some land there, a ridge there, on which Joseph is buried today. On that ridge. At the time of the Exodus, the Israelites carried Joseph's bones in an ossuary back to the Promised Land, and they buried Joseph at Shechem on the ridge. And it's a proleptic phrase. I just like saying proleptic because it sounds intelligent. Now, without my glasses, I need all the help I can get. A proleptic phrase, a statement that is so certain to happen, so absolute, that it's written down as if it already did happen. Which is why Jacob says, I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. He didn't take anything, but his sons did. His flesh did, his seed, down the line, 400 and some odd years later, when they came back into the promised land, they did take the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites under the conquest of Joshua. Now, chapter 49, 
And I, I'm just, can we just peek into chapter 49? We're going to just do this and stop. But I want you to hear something. The first two verses, and then we're done. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. He says in verse 1, What I'm going to share here in these blessings that we'll be reading through in chapter 49, they are what will befall you, he says, in the days to come. That's an incredibly important phrase. He's not just talking about what's going to happen to them in 10 years or 20 years or 40 years or 100 years. He's not talking about what's going to happen in 2 or 3 or 400 years. He is talking about the phrases literally in the Hebrew, I am going to tell you what is going to happen at the end of days. At the end of days. This phrase is used 14 times in the Old Testament and every time it deals with prophecy. Every time. Rabbinical writers recognize this phrase as referring to the last days of planet Earth. So what's going to happen here, gang, when we get into chapter 49, which we're going to do Sunday morning? So come back and you'll hear it. When we get into chapter 49, Jacob is going to be talking about the days to come, the end of days. And what he's going to lay out is so mind-boggling, so absolutely prophetic, it's powerful, it's the last blessing, if you want to write this down, an end times recitation, because Jacob is going to tell a story through the lives of his sons and through the blessings. A chronological history. Now, what's interesting is when he goes through and names the sons and walks through them in chapter 49, he doesn't do it in order. Oh, he starts with Reuben, who's firstborn, and then Simeon and Levi, but as you get on down, the, the order gets messed up. And it's not the way normally a blessing would be given to sons. They would do it chronologically. Oldest son first, all the way down to the youngest. But about halfway through, Jacob starts to shift names around and do it differently. Why? Because he's telling a chronology not of his sons, but of the entire history of Israel. And it is mind-boggling to walk through these blessings. And I won't tell you any more about that. Between now and Sunday, if you want to read through chapter 49 and be thinking about these things, look at what each one says and, what, and, and try to compare it. Think about how does that compare to the history of Israel. It is awesome. He covers the conception of Israel to the dispersion, to salvation, to restoration. It's all here in this amazing prophecy. And we'll see it unveiled before our eyes on Sunday morning. Let me leave you with two last verses tonight. With all these blessings and with this amazing adoption that happens in chapter 48, it just again sinks deep into my mind the heart of a father who adopts. And the way God looks at you and I and what he thinks about you and I. And he says in Hosea 2.23, uh, talking to Israel, he says, I will sow her for myself in the land. I'm going to seed the land, repopulate the land with Israel. I'm going to do it myself. But then he goes on and says, I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And he's talking about you. And me here tonight. The people who once were not, but now are. And we will say in the land, in those days, you are my God. First Peter 2 verse 9. Peter again says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. 
Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. May we live as a people. May we celebrate every day our gotcha day. May we know that our adoption is sure. That we're chosen, blessed, and ultimately sent by God. Let's pray. Dearest Father, thank you so much for the blessing of adoption. For us being able to refer to you as Father. As Paul said, so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. That we can respond to you and react to you and and come to you as children. And not just children who happen, children by accident, but children by your choice. Children who you desired and died for. God, thank you. Thank you, thank you. There are not words to describe the gratitude that we have to you, Lord, for calling us your children. Help us to walk in this tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.